Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday. Happy hump day. We're halfway through the work week. I hope things are going well for you. They're going great for me. We have a great show planned for you today. Royce White will be here, Steve Kim, Anthony Walker, Virgil Walker, and I've got a terrific, awesome fire starter for you. Uh, buckle up, get ready. Uh, we're going to get into this Tucker Carlson situation. 30 years ago, at the behest of the FBI, corporate media made defending Randy Weaver indefensible. Weaver, a married father of four, moved to a remote mountain in Idaho because he believed our government surrendered to a globalist agenda that would strip American citizens of longstanding constitutionally guaranteed rights, including freedom of thought, speech, and religion. A former Green Beret, the FBI attempted to induce Weaver to spy on an Aryan nation sect 70 miles from Weaver's cabin in Idaho. Weaver refused. The FBI sent an undercover agent to further recruit Weaver. The agent coerced Weaver into sawing off a shotgun and selling it to him, a federal crime. The federal government then charged Weaver with that crime. Weaver skipped court, choosing to isolate himself, his wife, and four kids on their $5,000 plot of land. Eventually, the FBI raided Weaver's land, killing his dog, his 14-year-old son, and his wife, and setting off an 11-day standoff at Ruby Ridge. An FBI agent was also killed at Ruby Ridge. To avoid responsibility for the massacre, the FBI and corporate media framed Weaver as a member of the Aryan Nation and a white supremacist. The smear campaign worked in the court of public opinion. People like Bill Maher played along with the narrative, helping to frame Weaver as a baby Adolf Hitler. The criminal justice system did not cooperate. In July 1993, a jury acquitted Weaver of all serious charges related to Ruby Ridge. In 1995, a judge awarded the Weaver family $3.1 million for the wrongful deaths of Weaver's wife and son. I bring this up because Tucker Carlson is going through his own version of Ruby Ridge. Years ago, Carlson thought he wanted to follow in his dad's footsteps and join the CIA. The agency allegedly rejected Dick Carlson's son. In recent years, Carlson has been the most outspoken and powerful critic of the CIA, FBI, and the Department of Defense. Months ago, he penned and voiced a damning monologue on Fox News, arguing that the CIA killed President John Kennedy. Carlson routinely mocked the FBI, CIA, and the DOD for embracing a woke agenda. Tucker is a nagging, dangerous thorn in the side of the surveillance agencies and globalists. He's one part Randy Weaver, one part Kanye West, one part Kyrie Irving, mixed with a dash of Alex Jones. Tucker Carlson challenges authority. He asks troubling and important questions should we be sending billions of dollars to Ukraine? What are the ramifications for allowing millions of illegal immigrants to cross our southern border? Why is the January 6th instigator Ray Epps 
free from punishment when others are not. Two weeks ago, Fox News fired Carlson, the highest rated and most influential cable news host. Now, the New York Times and the rest of corporate media are desperately trying to make Carlson indefensible. Tuesday night, the New York Times fired what it hopes is a kill shot to Carlson's reputation. The Times, the voice of the alphabet agencies, published a personal text from Carlson to a producer that Times editors believe paint Carlson as a bigot. Under the headline, Carlson's text that alarmed Fox leaders, it's not how white men fight. A triple byline story begins this way. A text message sent by Tucker Carlson that set off panic at the highest levels of Fox on the eve of its billion dollar defamation trial showed its most popular host sharing his private inflammatory views about violence and race. Here's what the text said in totality. Bear with me. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a video of people fighting on the street in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living shit out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. Yet suddenly, I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. I should be bothered by it. I should remember that somewhere, somebody probably loves this kid and would be crushed if he was killed. If I don't care about those things, if I reduce people to their politics, how am I better than he is? That's what he wrote in his text. How long are we going to allow our government to assassinate the reputation of any person who challenges government corruption and overreach? How long do we allow our government to play the race card against its opponents? I never met Randy Weaver. It's unlikely we would have been best friends. At the very least, he sympathized with members of the Aryan nation. He has every right to have those sympathies. It's America. He's free to think what he wants. I have sympathy for Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. I've never believed white people are the devil, and I've long been friends with Jews. I dated one for a little more than a year. People are complex, and so are their thoughts. I do know Tucker Carlson. I respect him. I believe he's a force for truth in the American media. The allegedly racist text message strikes me as, as, as authentic and vulnerable, not mean-spirited or bigoted. I get what he's trying to convey, or what he was trying to convey. The text is written on January 7th, 2021, one day after Trump supporters overran the Capitol. The previous seven years, corporate media had showcased Black Lives Matter riots, protests, and looting. The nation had grown used to seeing predominantly black crowds 
overrun buildings and loot them. Black people, corporate media, and leftists delighted in the all-white riot at the Capitol on J6. The statement, it's not how white men fight, is connected to the so-called insurrection. It's an admission by Carlson that leftists are winning and they're getting everyone to fight on their terms. Text communication with a friend is imprecise and politically incorrect. I've texted far worse things in the last year or maybe even in the last month. The government is now weaponizing our private communication to silence us. We can't think what we want. We can't say whatever we want to our friends. The government is reading all of us our Miranda rights. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of public opinion. None of us can survive that standard. The standard is un-American. Here's my advice to everyone. Accept that we're in a spiritual war of good versus evil, a war between believers and non-believers. Speak in those terms. Christians, believers in Yah, servants of the Most High God, image bearers of Jesus Christ, do not fight the same way as secular elites, globalists, and the misguided fools who seek their approval. They're corrupt. They lie. They work to overturn all that is good in this world. It's not how Christian men fight. That's my fire starter. Tucker Carlson is someone on a spiritual Christian journey. He's figuring out what it took me a long time to figure out. He's figuring out what I've been trying to convey and share with him over the last few years, what I've been trying to convey and share with all of you all, the two years we've been doing this show. There is a spiritual war and we have to choose sides, not based on skin color. We're gonna have to choose sides based on how we feel about God. Are you a believer? And, and how do believers act? And so I don't think Tucker Carlson did anything wrong in his text message. What I do believe is if he had said, Christian men don't fight this way, there would be no controversy and he would be totally accurate. And that is exactly what he really meant in that text. This is dishonorable. Christian men don't fight this way. That's what he meant. That's what I believe. Anybody that has watched over these last 10 years as corporate media has inundated us with images of American citizens acting in a lawless, wild, chaotic, violent nature anytime something happens that they don't like. When I look at the TV, it doesn't matter what color the person is. Doesn't matter whether it's at the Capitol building or in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Non-believers riot and burn things down and, and, and 
overrun police and threaten more violence, do violence. And so on January 6th, I was watching, it's like, oh, the MAGA crowd done fell for the trap. It took them seven years of shoving Black Lives Matter and Antifa and a bunch of foolish, unfathered black kids down our throats, doing all kinds of destructive chaos, and, and they trapped, they enticed. They, they, <laughs> no different than the FBI agent that went up to that mountain in Idaho and said, hey man, uh, sell me a shotgun, uh, just saw off the barrel. Enticed Randy Weaver into the trap. And so all that video they've been showing us and shoving down our throat, BLM, Antifa, out in the streets, doing all kinds of foolishness and violent chaos. They were begging believers, act like them. Come completely out of character and act like them. January 6th fell for the trap. I get it. In spirit, I was right there with you. Right there with you. These politicians have been so disrespectful to the everyday working man and woman in America, won't listen to us, lining their own pockets, lining the pockets of global corporations, selling us out to China, sending our money God knows where. I get why you were so angry. I get why you went to the Capitol. I'm disappointed you fell for the trap. It hurt all of us. All of us that know that this government is corrupt and out of control. And the message of this show that I keep pounding for all of you, for those of you that remember Randy Weaver, for those of you that remember Ashley Babbitt, for those of you that, that were well ahead of the curve and could see where this government was going 30 and 40 years ago. Don't choose sides based on race. It's ineffective. It will lead to more harm. That's what they want you to do. What they don't want us to do is to form an alliance based on our belief in God, based on our belief that there's a higher power that our rights come from. That, that's the glue, that's the thing that actually binds us. It's not all these surface level things, these different identities they have placed front and center to divide those of us that believe in God. And so we have to start thinking and talking in those terms. Christians, image bearers of God, followers of Jesus Christ, followers of Yah, however, however you say it, it's all appropriate. This black white thing, leave it alone. It's a trap. It's a trap. And, and, and th these tactics, and again, you have, once you get in this mindset and you understand how flawed humans are, and, and it, this, this whole process that the left has going on of criminalizing people's 
inappropriate thoughts, inappropriate expressions. It's all un-American. People are allowed in this country to think and say whatever they want. And it's important that we guarantee them that right. I don't have to be best friends with Randy Weaver to respect his right to believe, socialize with, and think whatever he wants. We have to protect. I'm just sorry. We have to defend the idiots in the Aryan nation, their right to think all of that dumb stuff. They have that right. We can ask the police to police the things that they do. Someone wants to go off into the mountains and be left alone by themselves with their wife and kids. And again, Randy Weaver was not a part of the Aryan nation. But, you know, again, had some racial beliefs that I don't particularly agree with. But that man has a right to go off into the woods wherever he wants with his wife and kids and live his life and be left alone and not be set up by the government. And Tucker Carlson has the right to text his producer and friend and say whatever he wants about January 6th. And and to sit here and watch corporate media act like his personal text to a, 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 a producer about January 6th has something to do with a Dominion lawsuit and that this is appropriate to be airing these things out. And like they're they're really serving the American public. They're really in line with the Constitution and these American values that have made this country the envy of the world. They are the enemy of the people, the enemy of the Constitution, the enemy of God where our inalienable rights come from. They're not on high ground. The New York Times is one million times more wicked than Tucker Carlson. And the three people that put their names on that wicked story should be ashamed of themselves. And the people that run Fox News, including Rupert Murdoch, should be ashamed of themselves for bowing down to these global elites that want to destroy the freedoms that people sacrifice for us to have. I I don't, (laughs) there's nothing they're gonna find in Tucker Carlson's text messages or phones that probably isn't in mine. I've said, done, thought, a lot of stupid things. A lot. Everybody has. If you think you're on some moral high ground and, oh, I've never said this, I've never done that, you're the problem. (sighs) That's my fire starter. Uh, Royce White's going to come on and help me expound on this topic. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I do want to tell you all before we get to Royce, I, I just want to take care of a little business and, and tell you guys about uh, my great friends, 
at Patriot Mobile. You guys know I have a Patriot Mobile phone and everything I just talked about as it relates to Tucker Carlson is why I have a Patriot Mobile phone. Because I'm going to support companies that support my values, American values, that support freedom and, 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 and my right to have those American freedoms in my generation and give them to our kids and young people. Patriot Mobile's America's only Christian conservative wireless provider offers dependable nationwide coverage on all three major networks. So you get the best possible service in your area without the woke propaganda pushed by leftists working hard to destroy this country. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you support free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, the Second Amendment, our military, veterans, first responders, the real heroes. Patriot Mobile, 100% U.S.-based customer service team makes switching easy. Just go to patriotmobile.com slash Jason or call them right now at 878-PATRIOT. Get free activation today with the offer code Jason. Ask about their coverage guarantee while you're there. That's patriotmobile.com slash Jason or call 878-PATRIOT. You can, everybody is upset and frustrated and, and look, at, what can I do? What can I do? You have to hop on board with these companies that support us. Yes, it's an adjustment, getting a new phone, getting a new carrier. It's an adjustment, I get it. But it's a tiny little thing when you think about the real sacrifices that were made so that we could have what's left of the freedom that our ancestors provided us. Switch to Patriot Mobile, patriotmobile.com slash Jason. Little difficulty for a lot of freedom. All right, uh, you can email me and us, fearlessplayshow at gmail.com. Boys, white next. It's my obligation, no hate, discrimination, raising up your hands for freedom. All right, welcome back. Time for some Morpheus Royce White uh, here to help me expound on my thoughts on Tucker Carlson and just uh, the character assassination, the reputation assassination that the FBI, CIA, Department of Defense, corporate media are doing to anybody that promotes truth and questions uh, the government and it questions authority. Royce, uh, your, your thoughts on, and part of me actually thinks this weak attempt to destroy Tucker Carlson's reputation is just gonna backfire and is only gonna just burnish his brand even stronger and make him an even greater force wherever he lands next. I, I find this New York Times story uh, ridiculous and, and pointless and, and you know there's nothing I saw in that text message that concerns me in any way yeah well you know what, what they'll do now first of all let's get this out of the way remember I brought this up a few weeks back right 
This was June 2021 National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism. You can go right to the whitehouse.gov and find this document. It's a National Security Council document. That was the predicate that was laid, um, you know, after Jan 6, after the George Floyd situation, after Iraq, after Kennedy, the list goes on. This is the manifesto. This is the culminating document of an out-of-control security state and, and uh, globalized federal government. And and this is what the the their you know it it was Steve Bannon it was Alex Jones now it's Tucker Carlson it'll be me it'll be you we're all on a list you know we're all on a list if you're white and you, some of us are higher up on the list than others Tucker's probably much higher than many but we're all on a list now I mean that that's the reality that people got to get down to we want to jerk off and watch football or or go to a concert or or go to your local watering hole and drink whiskey and eat cheeseburgers and act like everything's okay everything's okay until it's not okay everything's okay until it's not the the dollar your your currency it collapses fast and it it it, it collapses slow and then all at once when you go bankrupt you go bankrupt slow and then all at once, right? And that's where we are now. So Tucker is getting a real dose of being classified as a domestic terrorist. That's the reality. And what they're going to play upon most is the the thin veil of 501c3 Christianity that seems to undergird the entire conservative movement. They're all holier than thou, right? They have this sort of air of superiority in the name of Christ and Scripture. But really, we're all fallen. And I think you've done a great job of laying that out. But I think the widespread Christian movement has great trouble with this. And we project our need for a leader to be Christ-like before we follow them. And and not only do we do it in an attempt not to have to follow them into self-sacrifice, we also do it so we can look the other way out of cowardice when the, when the corrupt institutions come to persecute a Tucker Carlson. And it's on both sides of the movement. It's in black communities as well. But this is what they're playing on with Tucker. They're going to use the conservative Christian motif to say Tucker's uh, character is in question from a Christian's perspective. He's a he's a hypocrite, right? That's, you know, you've said this numerous times. And like many things, you got to beat me over the head with it before I finally fully understand it. You think this story is put out to appeal to white conservative Christians and and to undermine his credibility with them. Oh, he he committed the sin of Of alleged bigotry. Of course. And you think that. And they'll fall for this. Of course they will, Jason. Of course they will. We're under the false auspices in this country that the people who, look, the voter block who votes Republican, what have they really voted for since Nixon? They voted for the neo. You got to go back and watch my interview with Alex Jones. He had a perfectly uh, well-rounded take on this whole this whole dynamic. He said that the neocons had always sat over top of the Democrats that the war machine, the industrial military complex had always sat over the Democrats. Now on the conservative side, and even Tucker is 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 uh, um, is guilty of this at times, which is probably why they ousted him, because the Ukraine war shows the, the neocon military industrial complex uh, 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 dominance over the, the, the Democrat platform and party and its politicians and puppets, right? We see it now. It's like, oh, you guys were anti-war during Vietnam. Now you're pro-nuclear war. Figure that. (laughs) Um, But 
it was always that way that the neocons sat on top of the Democrat Party. And, and, and so the people who we presume have voted Republican, we like to think of in this polarized way. But Satan is not a being of polarity. Satan is not a polarized being. He's unified. He's unified in his wickedness. He's unified in his deception. He's unified in his manipulation. He's unified in his resent and rejection of God. He's unified in his war against Christ. There is a unity, and there's a unity that we, caught up in American politics like libertarianism, for example, we don't seem to see it. We don't acknowledge it. We can't acknowledge it. We fail to acknowledge it. And in there, we look for this smoking gun of corruption that is really metaphysical. And I bring that up now because we all seem to believe that the Republicans are much more red-pilled than anybody else. No, they voted for the slow destruction of this country in, in, in most part. And the 501c3 Christians led the way. And that doesn't absolve Marxists or communists or radical leftists like Ilhan Omar AOC. But you have to see that the two have been in on it the whole time. And this is what Tucker has, has, this is the revelation Tucker has had. And this is why he's speaking the way he is. And this is why he just went numero uno on the national direct uh, domestic terrorist uh, strategy list. Numero uno. He's the most dangerous man in America right now. What happens next? Uh, well, what happens next is they're going to lay it on. They're going to let, let me let me expound a little bit more on this. Because I, I know it's hard for some people to to, to grasp, right? Uh, we 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 acknowledge the idea of rhinos. We acknowledge the idea of of neocons loosely. But but think about my story with you, Jason, over the last year. How did they attack me when I ran for Congress? Mother Jones put out an article. And they slapped my face on it at the front of BLM marches, demonstrations in Minneapolis during the George Floyd uprising. And they put my face right next to Steve Bannon's to say what? Their whole point was not to uh, make me disaffected to the liberals or the Democrats because they know anybody who runs Republican on face value is going to be disaffected to the Democrats and liberals. They did it for the conservatives who would cuck and go, oh, he was a part of George Floyd demonstrations. That means he's a BLM plant. But not, not one of them would get the balls in their sack, their manly sack they want to defend against radical feminism. Not one of them have two stones big enough to march on the Fed. And that's not by accident. Because the three institutions in our country right now, the three institutions in this nation, we've deduced down now, I've deduced down now on Please Call Me Crazy, are as such. Centralized banking cartel, international centralized banking cartel, they sit above it. Underneath is technology. Within technology as the most efficient means of industrialization, there are two leading clans in technocrat, in technocrat governance. On the left... You have your welfare technocrats. They want to give you drugs and dopamine and, and virtual reality and video games. These are your Noah Yuval Hararis. That's one side of it. We all oppose that on the conservative side. You know, these are the people who say you'll own nothing and be happy. We all oppose the Klaus Schwab's, the radical left welfare technocrats. But what we are blind to are the martial law technocrats. And as I said on the show last week, the two, the two prevailing and pervasive forms of the uniparty are going to manifest themselves into a desire for welfare and a desire for martial law. None of these conservatives want to protest. None of these conservatives want to demonstrate. 
None of these conservatives want to get down to business. They talk a good game. And I'm not even saying what they're what they're talking or what they're that their rhetoric isn't right. But it's not backed up by action because if it was, this country wouldn't be where it is. We have to stop lying to ourselves. Tucker gets it now. He sees it. And he's going to use his voice to try and rally. And they're going to try and kill him in the cradle. That's why AOC said, oh, just get ready to sue him. They're going to use the same lawfare against him that they used against Alex Jones. They're going to use the same lawfare they used against Steve Bannon. They're going to use the same lawfare they're trying to use against Donald Trump. And guess what? At each moment, each one of those patriots, people should have been out in the streets, but they weren't because they're jerk-offs. And they don't like when I call them jerk-offs. They go, oh, Royce, you know, you're an alarmist. You're an extremist. It's not that bad. It's, it's not that deep. It's just basketball. It's just sports. It's, it's just one black man getting killed by a cop. Or what about Weaver? What about Weaver? The police state killed his family killed his uh what you, you we don't think that was a predicate it's all part of a common theme and we get wrapped up in bullshit wedge issues when the when the threat of tyranny is there we're not caught up because we don't see it we're caught up because we don't have the courage and the and the power and full faith in in christ and god to fight back from a righteous position not fooling me nobody they, they, we're, we're, they're not they're not fooling me i see it clear y'all don't want to fight you don't want to revolt you don't want it to be different don't lie stop the lying if you wanted to be different it would be so the other let's don't underestimate the opposition and how clever they are, because people got wound up and riled up and went to the Capitol. And they laid a perfect trap for those people and threw people under jails and are still harassing people. They shot a woman for no reason. Yeah. Killed her. And it's it's been televised, the assassination of Ashley Babbitt. And so people sit at home. and go, Wow. That's what happened when we protest. They they allowed everything to go on for seven years with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And when we protest, everybody gets thrown under the jail. A young woman gets assassinated. And so people are sitting at home like, what should we go out in the street and protest? Will we get thrown in prison and, and have our rights stripped of us uh, instantly like it was everybody January 6th? Is there a chance we'll get shot and killed? And so the, do you not we have some so- sympathy for people? No, I don't. No, I actually don't, Jason. When they're trying to cut young men's penises off, when they're trying to teach young men to cut their penises off at the grade school and they're trying to associate. You know, I saw John Stewart make the claim that the Second Amendment is, is fundamentally more dangerous to children than, than queer theory or gender theory. Now, some people will go, what relevance is this? The relevance is, yeah, the Second Amendment is more dangerous to young people than, than gender theory. The Second Amendment is more dangerous to the entire public than gender theory. It's a price we pay. The Marxists who are on the right just as much as the left, that's another false dichotomy, that the Marxists are only leftists. No, Marx came from Darwinism. Social Marxism, social Darwinism is from the same family tree. The Marxists, key, the the Marxists, the hallmark of Marxism, the herald of Marxism, the real danger of Marxism, isn't to point out the social distribution of, the unequaled social distribution of resources. That's natural. Nobody could deny that. Nobody with any sense could deny that. The real point of Marxism is to reduce the human existence down to price. And that's exactly what the Marxists have done. 
But capitalism does the same thing. So what's the remedy? Okay. So uh, again, uh, I'm trying to point out, I don't have sympathy because at home you have to ask yourself, what is the price that must be paid for the change that we see, that we want to see, the problem we see and the change needed? Malcolm X, Thomas Jefferson, two different sides of the same coin say the price of freedom is death. No, I don't have sympathy for you. We should all be so lucky to die uh, uh, for righteousness. That's the way of Christ. And your 501c3 Christians keep skipping out on the dying part. They've been skipping out on the dying part for 100 years. This is how the Fed and the global governance that we talk about so much, the Fed, the World Bank, the IMF, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, and so on and so forth. We all got our pom-poms out to talk about it. Well, what they did was they made everybody opt into a fiat currency system that says you've virtually traded away all of your freedom and governance, whether you like it or not, by the economy that you participate in. And if you want to participate, there is no sacrificing yourself for a greater moral cause. What kind of idiot would do that? There's money to be had. That's the whole scam here. That's the whole uniparty scam. It's money as the predicate to evil. And even deeper, it's convenience in, a, in the duality of materialism and security. All these people want materialism or security, and they're willing to trade their freedom for the convenience of both. So no, I don't have sympathy for you. Die. You should be ready to die. But even if you're not ready to die, Jason, are you at, re- at least ready to have some coordinated, sustained uh, protest? This is where the left is outflanked the right. And see, the left weapon, that they weaponize it by making the protest lukewarm and petty and superficial. But there's something about going and taking dominion. The conservatives are afraid to take dominion for righteousness. There are righteous and divine wars, and we're unwilling to fight them. We're willing to go to Iraq, though. We're willing to go to Afghanistan. We're willing to go to Ukraine. Hell, we're even, we're even willing to go to war with Taiwan. But we're not willing to occupy the Fed, the 12 Federal Reserve. There's only 12 Federal Reserves in the entire country. We're not willing to occupy the Fed as a show of disdain and dissent towards corrupt monetary policy, and they're going to raise the debt ceiling and make your kids pay for the Ukraine war and gender theory and a faith war against Christians and the anti-Jew movement there in Israel. They're going to make you pay for it, but you won't pay reparations, right? You don't want to pay reparations. That's out. I'm not paying reparations. You're already paying at home, and this is what I was going to tell you. Well, go ahead. But, uh, you know, you got me fired up today. I, this this whole thing is is absurd to me. You're already paying. It, You've been paying. $6 trillion in Afghanistan. Your city should look like Shangri-La. I ride through West 7th Street down there in St. Paul in our beautiful capital here in Minnesota after the great St. Paul. And the potholes are so big it's messing up the axles on the car. Where's Pete Booty Peg? You're already paying. The only difference is you're paying for your enslavement. You're paying for the destruction of this country. Because you like you like shoddy, lukewarm, commercial, celebrity TV leadership. You don't want real hitters. You don't want it to change. You would have said, yeah, Christ, crucify him because he broke the law. He broke the law. The law is only as righteous as those who, who, who uphold it or, or write it into policy. And we don't have righteous lawmakers. So there is no rule of law. The rule of law is fundamentally undermined and dead if your lawmakers are corrupt from top to bottom. Let's get down to it. You're, you're, you're saying a lot. Love it. I want you to unpack a couple of 
different things you've said just so that the audience can fully understand what you're saying and, and just some of the terms. And I, I love the use of the word lawfare. Love it. It's a different, they're using the criminal justice system and civil justice system to wage war on people and destroy people through law. But, but I just want you to unpack what you mean by the term lawfare. Well, lawfare is aimed at conservatives. Again, the, the calling card of conservative politics for a long time has been the rule of law. And it was a remnant of this rules-based order, uh, this rules-based world order, uh, you know, from the, from the World War II era. And, and conservatives get very caught up in the rule of law. That's one of the, the one, that's one of the key detractors of the George Floyd narrative you hear. And it's not just George Floyd, it's Weaver too. And yeah, we can see there's a clear difference between George Floyd and Weaver. But the fundamental role of government doesn't change in the prospect for every citizen in this country. And they'll use that. They'll say, well, if you don't break the law, you don't run into the cops. Uh, that's a lie. That's you wanting to feel that the cops are protecting you. You want that security, that sense of security. And it's a false sense of security. The cops are useless at ground zero. They'll come and clean up and contain, but at ground zero, you'll get your fucking head blown off and the, clop, the cops will come to, you know, to say you're deceased. The coroner will come. They'll do the crime scene. They'll try and go and bring up charges if need be. But ultimately, they're not there to save you. They're not there to protect you. So lawfare as a general practice is aimed to quiet and hush conservatives. If you're so dumb to break the law, if you happen to be telling the truth like Alex Jones, or you happen to be telling the truth like Steve Bannon, or you happen to be a symbol of political change like Donald Trump, or you happen to be a symbol of, of political commentary change like Tucker Carlson, if you trip up in any way that we could use to justify to a, a, a dumb, uh, to justify and validate to a dumbified American populace that you're in the realm of breaking the law, then we can now use the court to silence you because the conservatives who should stand up against tyranny, they'll cook for lawfare. They'll cook for the law, the rule of law. If you broke the law, you were too stupid to win the fight you were in. Okay. Yeah, well, at, at a point when you let omnibuses so big into policy that nobody ever had the time to read them, there is no rule of law. It's all being used to silence dissent. Yeah, I mean, that what you just described connects to Randy Weaver, man sitting up in the mountains all by himself with his wife and kids. Some federal agent comes out there, hey, man, uh, sell me some guns. Uh, hey, saw the barrel off that gun and sell it to me. <laughs> oh, federal crime. We re I mean, it's, it's man's up there minding his own business. Him and four people. I mean, it's, it's just the as other one you, I watched. As if you can't. 501C. As if you can't saw the barrel off a gun, as if that's so far and out of the, 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 the you know, the, the, the scope of the Second Amendment. It's just ridiculous. The, the president of the United States, let me, let me just say this, and then I'll, I'll answer the question about 501c3 Christians. You know I love to talk about them. The senile president of the United States of America can barely construct a coherent f***ing sentence. And he can be in charge of the most powerful military in the history of human civilization and of the biggest arsenal of nuclear weapons. He can barely construct a sentence. He can barely remember the time of day it is. He casually talks about kids sitting on his lap in public, which means he's either too stupid or too corrupt to even hide his sins, which is a, 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 a scary consideration in and of itself. At least hide the things that you're doing wrong. I mean, Jesus, for Christ's sakes, don't be so blatant in your satanic practice. 
he can control the entire military and you can't own one sawed-off shotgun? Go f*** yourselves. These people are ridiculous. It's, 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 uh, it's so out of control, I can't even... It's hard to stomach. It really is. 501c3, Christian, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think when Christ said, uh, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, it wasn't a it wasn't a prescription about individuals paying taxes and, and certainly not a tyr- tyrannical and corrupt taxation like we pay here in America today. I think he meant that uh, Christian institutions should pay their taxes, and that Christian institutions should not take a tax exempt status to not speak about the most pertinent political issues of the land. Uh, first and foremost, that affect their their parish members or, or their uh, you know their their faith practitioners uh, in an immediate and direct way that undermine uh, the love of God and and the following of Christ. So, and I think that the entire I mean, if you go look at the five hundred one c three specs, I mean, what the qualifications are, they all but say if you take a tax exempt status, you belong to the government, and that and, and Christ doesn't belong to the government. God doesn't belong to the government. God and Christ are not bound by by the law of the tax code. And as soon as you take that tax exempt status, which many, many Christian, Muslim, and even you know Jewish uh, places of worship have done, you belong to the government. And that's how stuff like this ends up just walking around, you know, with its with its balls hanging out. Royce, great stuff. I gotta go. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you later this week or next week. <laughs> Royce was on one today. That was good stuff. Uh, and you know what? We here at The Blaze, we're on one as well. Uh, it's no secret there has been a war on comedy lately. You're hardly ever allowed to joke about anything these days. Well, <laughs> Blaze TV is embarking on a mission to save comedy and impact the culture. And we're launching this mission this Thursday, May 4th, by releasing our first ever full-length comedy film. That's tomorrow. This movie's called Reopening, and it's a mockumentary that follows the cast and crew of a small community theater as they struggle to reopen during the heart of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a brilliant work of satire using humor to expose and ridicule the insanity that swept the nation during the pandemic. We knew our audience would absolutely love it, so we're thrilled to be delivering it to you this week. Join us tomorrow, May 4th, 8 p.m. Eastern, for the premiere of Reopening. We'll be streaming a live pre-show on YouTube and Facebook with members of the cast, but the movie itself will be available exclusively on Blaze TV. So in order to join the fun, head on over to blazetv.com slash reopening and use the code reopening to get $20 off your subscription. That's blazetv.com slash reopening, promo code reopening for $20 off. Stick with us, hit those five star reviews on Apple, hit the likes button on YouTube. Steve Kim, next. All right, welcome back. Gonna lighten things up a little bit. Bring in the Korean Cosell on this Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday evening. Uh, Steve Kim gonna talk some sports. I wanna start with uh, Shannon Sharp 
pushing back on Deion Sanders and Deion Sanders' complaint that the NFL draft didn't take enough HBCU players. Deion said he was ashamed of the NFL. Shannon Al Sharptong with a different take that's kind of surprising. Let's play the clip. What's your reaction to what Deion had to say? I disagree with him. In 2020, the NFL instituted a, 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 a combine for just predominantly HBCU players. Yep. All 32 teams shows up. Mm-hmm. This year they did, <clears throat> yes. If that's the question, okay, who are those players that should have been drafted and what round should they have been drafted in? 47 went to this combine. Who are the players that should have been drafted yep. from the HBCUs? Okay. And what round should they have been drafted in? All right. Skip, this is not affirmative action because there were times that black black kids couldn't get into university, so they had to imply jobs. There were jobs couldn't blacks couldn't get, so you had to implement it. I got but it. But the NFL is a business. The NFL, if I don't give a damn what color you are, mm-hmm. if you you can help us win. Mm-hmm. That's why they take guys with questionable character. Yeah. They don't care. They want to win. Pro sports is a bottom line business. The only two things that are on the menu, wins and losses. Now, how many guys can we get? I don't give a damn the color. Mm-hmm. Can help us win. Skip. I mean, so, I mean, you look at the, 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 the conferences. The SEC has 62, no, no, no surprise there. Mm-hmm. Big 10. Skip, I, I, I mean, I think, hold on. All the top 10, please. Guess what, Skip? I'm going to give you one guess. Guess what color? Every top 10 pick this year in the NFL draft was. I'll give you one guess. <laughs> Black. Three of the top five quarterbacks that were selected, one, two, and four. Yeah. Guess what color they were, Skip? Yeah. Okay. Skip. We can go four. It was four out of five. First four out of five, right? Yeah. Off the board were black quarterbacks. Yes. Well, that's historic, right? So, what, 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 what am I missing, Skip? I, I, I get it. I went to an HBCU. You did. But, Skip, I believe if the guys were talented enough, yeah. I don't believe the NFL. There was once upon a time that was the case. Mm-hmm. Not just at HBCUs. There were black quarterbacks that were good enough to play in the NFL yeah. that got overlooked. Skip, with the way that it is now and the amount of money that the, there are a few teams don't spend, but most teams spend an absorbent amount of money on scouting. hmm these guys get in their car and they drive around to the Gramlins, to the Prayer Views, and all these other institutions and trying to find that diamond in the rough. You'll get more credit for finding an HBCU guy mm-hmm. that can play in the NFL yeah. than you will at Michigan. Yeah. Hell, they got the best of everything. So they should be they should be top of the line. But when you're at an HBCU, your offensive coordinator, probably your running back coach, <laughs> maybe your wide receiver coach, and hell, he might even teach a class. Yeah. I'm going to disagree with Prime on this one. Okay. I don't I don't believe I don't believe I believe if the guys were talented enough to get yes. drafted, mm-hmm. I believe they would have gotten drafted. So, all of that's the truth, uh Steve Kim. Why doesn't he apply that exact same thinking to the blackhead coaching situation? You know, that's a great question. I'm just telling you watching that clip, boy, Skip was just he wanted to interject with some white guilt. You could just see it. And then Shannon just warmed down with facts. <laughs> he really did. And Skip's like, you're right. Better yeah, stand down here. Uh, that, that's a great question. But here's what I think, going back to this a little bit more. No matter what Shannon has said about HBCUs in the past, I know you guys had a little bit of a disagreement years ago when you were on much friendlier terms. He, I think, is seeing the hypocrisy of Dion. And this was so divorced from reality. 
that he said, oh, come on, I, I can't even get on this. And look, at, at a certain point in time, everyone cares about their credibility. They may be willing to say wacky things. They certainly will pander um, and say things that are provocative just to appease the mob. But everybody has their limit. And obviously for Shannon Sharp, this was it. Um, in terms of the head coaching thing, that's a great question. Someone should ask him that. If Skip Bayless is the gutty, outspoken guy that he used to be or thinks he is, that would have been his retort. But it's not. Because, again, got the white guilt thing going there. So I, I, I don't know. But Dion said something that I believe that collectively – the football world, people that have worked in football, played the game, and now coach in it, they probably just rolled their eyes because, again, we all know what Dion was doing. He was pandering to the masses and trying to get some black points back from the very same people that ripped him for leaving Jackson State. My, my only thing is, and I know that I'm critical of, of Shannon Sharp, and some people will hear it and think I just don't like Shannon Sharp, but – the, the fact that he won't apply that exact same thinking to head coaches makes me think that all Shannon Sharp is doing is, well, here's an opportunity for me to look like I'm fair and balanced yeah. and that I'm a rational person. And so let me take this so that when I do say this stupid stuff, when I do say that, oh, all the owners are racist, they didn't hire Lovey Smith or some black coach, blah, 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 I'll have credibility on that. I think both sides are still lying because what, what, what they don't have is a consistent logic and worldview that connects all of their opinions. They, they, there's no, that's why there's no consistency. And again, that's why this show is always promoting some kind of consistent logic that you stand on and apply to every situation. That's my problem with a but lot they, of these athletes on TV running their mouth. In an, in, in, with a draft where your first 10 players were black and many of them in the top five were quarterbacks, I don't know what else Shannon could have said, though, in this particular year. I, I mean, Deion Sanders made the most ill-timed statement based on the makeup of this year's top end of the first half of the draft, right, of the first round. What else yep. did Shannon say? Sometimes you just have to say, you know what, facts are facts. You know, and, and not F-A-X, because that's what a lot of people do. I see this a lot on boxing Twitter. People with the whole racial agenda will, will spout something and say facts, and it's not really a fact. And then if you actually give them a real fact, F-A-C-T, then you're deemed racist. But in, but in this particular case, Dion was so out of line that I think even Shannon Sharp had to believe, you know what, let me bring this back and let's just go with the actual data that took place in front of us. All right, I want to move on to uh, last night's uh, Western Conference playoff game, Warriors-Lakers. NBA's ratings are ticking up. People are taking an interest. LeBron James versus Steph Curry is certainly interesting. Lakers won last night by five points late in the game, down three. 10, 11 seconds left to go in the game. Jordan Poole, the guy that uh, Draymond Green punched at the beginning of the season, was having a good game, 6 of 10 from three-point range at this time, down three, 10 seconds left. Uh, take a look at this shot that Jordan Poole took late. Some people are calling it controversial. Steph Curry's double team gets the ball out of his hand. Here's what Jordan Poole does. 
Warriors down three. Curry double team. Jordan Poole lets it fly. No. Long rebound to Schroeder. Clock ticks. And finally a whistle comes. And it's going to be a timeout. Lakers. I don't know if you can see Steph Curry throwing his hands up in the air. He bent down. He didn't look pleased after the game. Steph said all the right things. You have a problem with that shot? I thought it was way too early. Let's say he drills it. That's my one quibble, really. And then, then now you're giving the ball back. That that shot has to come from anybody within, I would say, two and a half to three seconds to go. Because now if you miss it, you have a legitimate chance to rebound it. The toughest shot to make in basketball, in my view, Jason, is when you're down three in the last 15 seconds. Because now defenses can play you outside in. And they'll give you the layup. They'll give you stuff in the paint. So it's very difficult. So maybe Jordan Poole thought, you know what? I have an open shot. I've had a good game. I'm an outside shooter. You know they're going to overload to Steph because that's what happened. But it reminds me of a story. I read this long time ago. Pat Riley, when he was a member of the Lakers, he was a journeyman player, right? He takes a last-second shot with the game on the line, and he misses. They come back into the locker room. Everyone's dejected. Everyone's kind of getting dressed. And um, Wilt Chamberlain says to Riley, hey, Pat, why'd you take that shot? And Riley says, well, I was open. And Jerry West just goes, yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah, so you can make the argument that you're right. It needed to be Steph Curry taking that shot. But again, they swung the ball to Draymond. Now, maybe Draymond should have given the ball right back, but he may have seen two guys on him. So maybe they wanted to rotate the ball. Again, I think the shot was way too soon. Wasn't there about eight and a half seconds left? So Ten again, seconds. But- I thought it was way too deep. That, too. I thought it was that, too deep. Three right, feet it, too deep. He, he, he's taking that like he's Dame Lillard, and he's not Dame Lillard. Right, and, and unless you're wearing number 30 on that team, you shouldn't be taking that shot. But, again, you know that Steph Curry is going to be double teamed, and they're going to blitz him. So I thought he made the good play, Steph, by getting rid of the ball early. I wonder if Draymond thinks to himself, you know what? This guy that I punched out, maybe maybe I should just give him the ball back and set a high screen for Steph. But again, in a situation like that, Jason, in a three-point game defensively, they get to fan out and go outside in. I'm not Hubie Brown, but even I know that. I'm going to move on to – I'm bringing this topic up because perhaps you can help me. I'm giving a speech Friday in Kansas City. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I'm talking about name, image, and likeness and its impact on college sports. I, I'm, I'm pretty down on name, image, and likeness. I think it's going to ruin, further ruin college sports. And I'm going to use Angel Reese as an example in, in my discussion and talk. Did you see? They just, Angel Reese. Just got a Mercedes through this name, image, and likeness deal. Angel Reese is the woman that was scored 15 points in a national championship game for LSU in the women's tournament. She's the one that got in Caitlin Clark's face and taunted her after the game. And, and this, to me, proves what I've been saying about name, image, and likeness from when they first started talking about this, even before it was implemented. I was like, they're going to start rewarding players for things that have very little to do with on-court excellence. It's, have you made yourself into a personality? And so 
if she scores 15 points in that national championship game, gets most outstanding player, and things just move on, I don't think she's near the big star she is. The taunting is what made her a big star, and it's why she's got a Mercedes. And trust me, everybody watching knows what she did to catapult herself, and now she's getting the spoils of it. I went and taunted someone after winning the national championship there. It was classless, it was rude, it was inappropriate, but I'm being rewarded for it. I'm black, I have this black privilege. Everybody's afraid to criticize me, they're gonna cape up for me, and look, how, look what I got for it. Name, image, and likeness is going to destroy what's already on shaky ground, sportsmanship. You know, it's funny. This story has me has me thinking of that old song from Pebbles, Do You Want to Ride in My Mercedes? I mean, that, that should be the soundtrack to that commercial. I'd be very disappointed <laughs> if that's not laid over all those images. I'm going to give Angel Reese a little bit of a break here. The NIL was originally attended Four college athletes who were very popular, think of the Michigan Fab Five, Reggie Bush, where a lot of fans from all across the country and the school in that region were buying paraphernalia with jersey numbers or images uh, that had their likeness on it, right? And so, and, and the argument used to be, well, we get none of that. So every number four jersey that Michigan sold in 1991 and 92, none of that went to Chris Weber. Uh, based on his hard work and how popular he became. Well, at least with Angel Reese, she had, no matter how you feel this was achieved, she achieved something on the court for LSU, right? She won the MVP of the Final Four of a national title team. I think this is much better than pay for play, which is going on with high school seniors who are flat out choosing their school based on the NIL and nothing more. I, I, I don't have that much of an issue with it. I really don't, because this is the way the NIL should work. You get on campus, you do something, you achieve something, you get some notoriety, you up your market value, okay? Then you get rewarded for it. What's happening now is when you're telling high school seniors before letter of intent, hey, kid, uh, I just want you to know we can get you a uh-huh, NIL that'll promise you $2 million, and that's just in your freshman year. Honestly, with, with Angel Reese, you, I, I know you're going to disagree. I think she's actually earned that more than the other situation that I pointed out. Well, has she earned it more than the other situation? Yes. But is the taunting and the bad behavior a part of well, what has increased the deal? And they're going to inspire more of it. Yes. Well, okay. You could look. I know you think she's just a role player. I, I know you think she's just basically a better-looking version of A.C. Green. And maybe her game is like that. I get it. I get it. But she won the MVP to, to the victor goal, the spoils, right? I, I, I'm just telling you, this is what I really believe at a school like LSU and the SEC, they put a heavy emphasis on sports. And when you win a national title and you are the face of that team, whether you're Joe Burrow in 2019 before NIL or Angel Reese now, why not? Why, why shouldn't they at least get that? That, that? I think you're being a little bit hard on Mrs. Reese here. I can't believe I'm defending her. By I'm the not way. being hard on Mrs. Reese. I'm being hard on name, image, and likeness and what it's going to produce 
Angel Reese is going to do her thing. She's going to be rewarded for it. The whole system's rigged up to favor her. She's going she's gonna to get She scored 15 points. Hats off to her. She transferred in from Maryland. She's part of a portal championship team. Hats off to her. Great. I want to move on. Last thing. Uh, Joel Embiid won the MV, NBA MVP. He beats out Nikol, Nikola Jokic uh, for the Denver Nuggets. Did uh, Kendrick Perkins' criticism of uh, Jokic earlier in the year or, you know, late in the season, you think that played any impact in Embiid winning the MVP, and particularly by such a wide margin? I believe he got 75 of 100 first-place votes. Jokic, I think, got 15. Uh, You think Kendrick Perkins swung the vote by basically playing the race card? You can make an argument that the backlash against any player winning three MVPs in a row, especially if it's a white European guy, that that may be a very, very uh, legitimate argument. But do I think any MVP voter, as they're looking at their ballot, going, okay, here, let me see. You know what? What does Kendrick Perkins think? I don't think that happened. Jay, no, I I, I actually don't. I I don't believe that Kendrick Perkins has the ability or the respect to sway people's votes. I don't. I I really don't. Now, do I think, again, was there the perception that, wow, how can we let Jokic, this non-athletic slug, be the three-time MVP like a Larry Bird? We can't let that happen. That might have been a factor. That might have been a factor. But again, I'll go back to this argument. I think all these MVP awards should be decided after the playoffs. I am very interested to see who goes further between the 76ers and the Denver Nuggets. I'm interested as well. I don't want to make the MVP thing about what happens in the postseason and who goes the furthest. Someone could get injured. Joel Embiid, he's injured right now. Uh, you know, so and so a bunch of different factors come into play. I mean, and if it's it's all about, oh, OK, how to, who who had the best team and who won the championship? Mm, I wouldn't like I, that. I will tell you this. From the 89-90 season all the way up until he retired and taking away the year and a half that he did not play, which was what, 93 to 95 ish, right? Michael Jordan should have had his name on that trophy every single year. But I, but this goes all the way back to him. They don't want a single player winning it, winning it every single time. It gets monotonous. I think it probably hurts the league. It makes players jealous. And there could be people that are very aggravated by that. But honestly, as someone that's a Laker fan, Magic Johnson in 89-90 was, was really good. He was not the best player. It, it was that guy in Chicago. Even the year that Charles Barkley had, this first year in Phoenix in 93, he was excellent. He wasn't Jordan. Then it was Carl Malone in 97, had a, a fantastic year in Utah. And there was, this, um, there was this movement, give it to the mailman. And I'm thinking to myself, no, nah, it's still Jordan. I mean, so th- this, this goes back. It didn't just start with Jokic, to be fair. I mean, there came a time they should have just called it like in hockey. They said, this caught the Wayne Gretzky Award and just give it to the second best player. The same thing could have applied in the NBA for about a full eight, nine years with Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Thank you, Steve. Great job. We'll see you tomorrow. Uh, get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. I'm going to do some 10C Harmony with Andy Walker, Virgil Walker. Next.
All right, welcome back. Time for a little Tennessee Harmony. The Walker brothers are here. Anthony Walker in studio with me. Virgil Walker uh, in Atlanta. They're not brothers. Uh, they're brothers in Christ, though. Uh, Anthony, if you could uh, get us rolling with a prayer. Father God, we're thankful for today and thankful for your blessings. Father, help us to be examples uh, each and every day in what we say and what we do. We're thankful for those who are listening. Bless them as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah. Uh, so I was watching uh, Bill Maher's show this week. He did a big interview with Elon Musk, one of the richest men in the world, the owner of Twitter. Uh, they get into a discussion about the woke mind virus and critical race theory. They start talking about George Washington and the kids only know about him being a slave owner. And then it lurches off course to basically start arguing that uh, the Bible justifies slavery, and that irritated me. Let's play the clip. I mean, yeah. Let me let me let me give you, let me give you an example that, that, that a friend of mine told me, which uh, you know, his uh, daughters uh, go to college in, in oh, sorry, go to high school in, in the Bay Area, um, and um, and he he was asking them like, well, so who are the you know who are the first few presidents of the United States? Uh, the, 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 they could name Washington, uh, but and I said, well, what do you know about him? Well, he was a slave owner. What else? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing. Right. I'm like, uh, okay, that's maybe you should know more than that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that that is the woke mind virus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, no, the, it, exactly. Like, it's it's like, <laughs> you know the. Uh, you know, slavery is obviously a, a horrific institution, but, but we should still know more about George Washington than and, that. And by the way, one that was practiced all over the world yes, yes. forever, it, since the beginning of time, by every race, including yes. people of color. I'm sorry yes. to tell you that. It's huge in the Bible. Absolutely. So Bible it, loves it. We're, we're, I, 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 <laughs> really? Yes, they, they, they're, they're, they're quite strict about, like, you know, don't take someone else's slave and that kind of thing. Right, you know? but no one ever says, just don't do it. <laughs> they don't. They don't. They don't, they don't, they don't they, at no point does it say slavery is bad in no, the Bible. No. no. <laughs> At no point in the Bible does it say slavery is bad. Any, anyway, the, the Bible has long been used as, as people arguing, yeah, justify slavery. I wanted to get two experts to uh, address this and let's put this to bed. Uh, Anthony, does the Bible justify slavery? <laughs> we got to deal with context uh, and Bill Maher does not even address context. Uh, slavery in the Bible is akin to indentured servitude. And it was usually related to paying off a debt. So if somebody had a, a massive debt, uh, they would uh, hire themselves out to work off their debt. And it would usually be in a family setting. Uh, we're going to you know, clean your kitchen, do your laundry, things of that nature uh, in order to pay off our debt. But at the same time, uh, and this the reference I'm getting for the viewers is Exodus chapter 21. Is, it speaks very explicitly about this. Um, you would no longer work no more than six years. Every seventh year, you're free. Uh, every 50 years, no matter who slaves, there was a year of Jubilee, all slaves were set free. The conditions would often be so good that slaves would say, man, I enjoyed working with this family. Uh, I know that, you know, my years are up, but I, I just like it here. I like the work. I'd like to stay. And so they would pierce their ear as a symbol of, hey, I'm free, but I choose to stay in this good condition. So 
It was indentured servitude. Now, the kind of slavery that the Bible condemns and that God condemns was the torture, the brutality, the rape uh, that we would find that Egypt did to Israel. And he even mentions it in Exodus chapter 16 as well. Whoever kidnaps a man, sells him or is found in his hand, he shall be put to death. So this kind of activity, the Bible does not condone. Um, but but just the blanket term of slavery to say, oh, the Bible condones it. You got to be careful in how you make uh, that statement. So um, and then I'll give you give you one more passage in Colossians chapter four, verse one. Uh, Paul says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master. So even at times when masters, slave masters would even hint towards mistreatment, hint towards unfair conditions, you would have Paul, an apostle, rejecting that by saying, now watch out, watch how you treat them. Be sure that you treat them well, you pay them well, because you have a master as well. But it was not the uh, kind of chattel slavery that we had in uh, former American history, not the kind that was in Egypt. The Bible does not condone that at all. Yeah. Virgil? Yeah, this... Will you jump on go the ahead, pile? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'll just jump on the pile and just simply say, Anthony knocked it out of the, out of the ballpark. I mean, this is a, this is a simple... Uh, apologetic uh, in that there's a there's a category error that is happening when people engage in this level of apologetic and the category error and, and again Anthony just just laid it out is the idea that that you know slavery was at, was advocated for and that was not at all the case he'd mentioned Exodus 21 16 it says whoever whoever steals a man uh, and sells him uh, anyone found in possession of him, he, he shall be put to death. So right there, what you have is the kind of chattel slavery that we endured, that blacks endured uh, during during you know the the, the uh, cross Atlantic slave trade um, would be would be condemned, and really God would would adjudicate that that action in the manner of death. It would be a life for life, and so that there no there are no more there are no more clear terms that that can be laid out for that. The kind of indentured servitude that that is uh, seen in the Bible, even even in that, I think Anthony laid it out was to be was to be the treatment was to be kind, gracious, uh, of, of you know, of treating uh, people like human beings, creating the image of God, rather than the idea of this absolute subjugation. Um, and again, I, I don't want to gloss over the idea that slavery in any form or fashion uh, is is not is not commendable. It's not positive. It's not it's it's a challenging thing. But the idea of indentured servitude, we're engaged in that to some degree. I know we live in a capitalistic society, but I just I just received my my bill for uh, for my car note, uh, and I, I'm thinking, man, I got to go to work to pay that bill. It's that kind of an exchange that we're talking about. We live in a capitalistic society. They did not. You tried in their environment, in their context, to co connect yourself with the wealthiest family that you could in an effort to have a, a life at all. Uh, and so this was this was much more normative uh, in even first century culture and, and further back than it is in our day. And, and so all we have, the only framework we have is is the is the battle. I'll even I'll even mention this. I thought about this. Anthony called. We kind of chatted about uh, about the apologetic around this. It, we got pretty much wrapped it up in a handful of minutes. And so uh, we pressed on, but um, Paul calls himself, Paul in, in Romans chapter one, uh, you'll find that he opens up that chapter as he's writing to the, to the uh, Christians in, in Rome. He says, I, Paul, 
am a servant of Christ. That's how our, our Bible translates it. The word there is doulos, right? We, we, we look at that word and our English translators knew the, the kind of vitriol, the kind of, uh, the kind of hatred that we have for the word slavery. So it didn't put that word there. That word doulos there is actually the word slave. I, Paul, am a slave to Christ. And he's writing this to a, a country, uh, a, a space where in Rome, there were more slaves than anyone uh, could, ever, could ever imagine. So he's using language that A, that they would understand, and in the terminology of something that they would visually see every day. You see slaves around you. There were a million slaves in the Roman Empire. You see slaves around you every day. I'm a slave, but I'm a slave to Christ himself. And so he, he even uses that language. And I, 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 I share that to say two, one thing, the two things. One, the, the translators translated that word servant rather than slave because they knew that the English reader would only have one frame of reference in mind. And that is the chattel slavery that we experience in our country. Whereas in their context, they understood slaves. They understood that there were slaves who actually had high position. There were slaves who were lawyers. There were slaves who who had high who had high position, high status in the in, you know in this place in which they lived. But yet their family was in some way indentured to another family to the for the payment of a debt, and as a result, they were up. They, they were they were slave they were slaves. The way y'all keep mentioning debt in all of this makes me go to and particularly as it relates to indentured servant or whatever, what, what, what is the Bible's position on debt? Because I think of how much debt we lay on young people and just people in general are comfortable being in debt. And, and I've always, I've, I've, I've loved not being in any debt. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, what's the Bible's position on debt? It's, it's, it's to try to live your life outside of debt. That, that's the, the primary position scripturally, but culturally, that's just how they lived because they, there was debt. Similarly to now, the, the primary effort is we don't really want to be in debt. Like we don't want to work that way. However, if we do, there are ways to work out of it. But see, and I know you, you're going in one direction, but you brought this up that, that helps us to paint the bigger picture. The way that Paul describes what sin is and, and the Bible describes what sin is, he says the wages of sin is death. We are all indebted to God because of our sinful lifestyle, because of wow. all the sin that we have lived through. We are in debt. And guess what Jesus does? He sacrifices himself to pay off the debt so that now we can live in freedom. But because of that, Paul would say, and that's exactly what Virgil brings up. Paul would several times introduce himself. I am a prisoner of the Lord. I am a bond servant. I am a doulos. I am a slave because I'm indebted to Christ. Not that yeah. we can earn it by works, but because of what he's done for us. So I, I didn't want to take it too far. But so, no, I love what you just yeah. said, because what it makes me say and. Virgil, you correct me if I'm wrong, and then Anthony, you follow in afterwards. But it's like God wants us to be in debt to him and free of all other debts so that we can repay or serve. We are servants to God, whatever it is. And, and, and we're in the best situation because he has paid it all. 
He cares for us well. The least he asks us to do is give our life to him. Yeah, I'll Virgil. add this. I'll add this in, in a couple of ways. One is it relates to debt and money and finance. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about, about how we should function uh, in our day-to-day lives as it relates to debt, as it relates to finances and the like. Uh, and, and of course, in the prosperity gospel that I came out of, there was a whole lot made about that, 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 that they leveraged to mean more than what God intended. And I think Anthony brought it home because at the end of the day, debt and, and all of its financial uh, in, in, encumberments really uh, are temporal. Uh, and the ultimate debt that we need to begin thinking about is the one that we owe uh, to God the Father for our sins against him and that, the, and that that debt was paid through Christ. So I think Anthony beautifully laid that out, kind of kind of reeled it back into what the ultimate, ultimate point is. I, I think you're right. Scripture says we're either a slave to sin and death or a slave to righteousness, but we're going to be a slave to one or the other. Uh, There's great joy and benefit to being a slave to righteousness. And the only way to get there is through recognizing what Christ did on our behalf, uh, submitting to that, uh, repenting of sin and placing our full faith in Jesus Christ and walking out a life free from that debt, uh, but, but fully understanding that it was a debt paid on our behalf. And that as a result, we owe our lives to God the Father. I see so many, and, and thank you, Virgil, and I, I know you need to bounce, but we'll end on this note, Anthony. I see so many people um, living above their means, trying to keep up with the Joneses, taking on debt, that they, and all of it becomes an obstacle to serving God. Mm-hmm. You start compromising decisions, because I gotta have this kind of car, I gotta live in this kind of home. I got to have two or three degrees and I take on all this college debt and all of it starts compromising in my your decision making. Yes. And that's why we should live within our means and 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 we can't be so hyper materialistic that we're comfortable to you know I I look at I I looked I watched the NFL draft and I saw the young people taking the stage with all the gold jewelry and all that other stuff. And I was just like, they're taking on things that could put them in it. Because if you start, then the next thing, you've got family members, they want jewelry too, mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And the next, your decisions are all compromised. And anyway. You become enslaved to that kind of mentality, that kind of lifestyle. And whenever the lifestyle calls, you got to jump to supply versus living in Christ, he's got all the things taken care of. The only status that we have is one to giving him glory. And as far as the indebtedness, we know that we're indebted to him because of his salvation, but I don't serve him out of obligation. I serve him now out of appreciation. Like we get the privilege to serve the living God and don't have to worry about anything else. We don't have to worry about representation, who's going to do this and all that. We just live to glorify him. I got a birthday gift for you, Anthony. No. Yes. <laughs> Go see the movie Big George for me. Yes, sir. I'm going to be That's my it. birthday gift to you. <laughs> Go see the movie. But it's the way y'all talk about Top Gun. That's how I'll be talking. I about heard I heard that that Big George Foreman is Jason Whitlock approved. It's <laughs> a thousand percent Jason Whitlock approved. It's it's awesome. Uh, enjoy. Uh, the rest of your week. 
We'll play some harmony and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. So divided, stop fighting and stand tall. We used to be a nation, one united. Now we're headed for a downfall. God let your light shine down. What we need more than anything now. Tell us Cause together we're so much stronger God let your light shine down What we need more than anything now Let's make a simple vow Let's come together now Put all your weapons down Love one another now Get to me Open up your eyes and see